Maybe it's because nearly everyone pays taxes, but few annual reports get more attention than that of the Taxpayer Advocates Annual Report to Congress, especially this year, as the IRS does two things. It's seemingly emerging fully from the pandemic, and it's expecting a big funding boost thanks to recent legislation. Here with the story behind the report, the national taxpayer advocate herself, Erin Collins. Ms. Collins, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you as well. And this report is enormous. I want to congratulate you for organizing the online version in such an easily searchable way relative to the big, long PDF of years ago. But just give us a sense of, is this a year-round effort to prepare this and you kind of hit a button and then the report is there? I imagine this is something that you just don't start three weeks before you get to the testimony stage. Yeah, I wish we could just push a button. The challenge is that we really start looking at issues uh, about March, April, May, time frame in order to start focusing on the issues. It is a almost a year-long process. The first thing that the statute requires is that the NTA or my office identify the 10 most serious problems. And then we work with the IRS throughout the year in developing the facts and then coming up with recommendations to try and resolve issues on behalf of taxpayers. And then during that same process, we also look at issues that have come up um, where we need legislation and changes. And so, again, throughout the year, we go through proposals and then come up with sort of the the final version. Uh, This year, we have, I believe it's 65 uh, legislative recommendations that we propose to Congress to go ahead and try and correct some of the things to uh, improve tax administration. And do you get pretty good cooperation from the IRS itself? I mean, the data, for example, on telephone response, that's their data, correct? Yeah, all the data in the book is from the IRS. So we have a procedure, in essence, that we issue them requests, they respond. And then also when we have the report drafted, we do a fact check where we ask the IRS to make sure that the facts that we included in the report are accurate. Because the last thing we want to do is have assumptions based on incorrect facts. Right. And in talking to Congress and really to the public about this report, you call customer experience the elephant in the room. That's the biggest issue with IRS, and that's a manifestation of a lot of problems behind the scenes then. Fair way to put it? Yeah, I would I would say that's a great way of putting it. And I think the challenge when COVID-19 hit, uh, the pandemic really focused in on the challenges on customer service. I think previously there were challenges with the IRS, but during COVID, it really highlighted the difficulties with telephone, uh, the paper correspondence. Uh, everything seemed to hit at the same time. Now, the paper, the issue was that the paper goes to IRS offices and there was nobody in there to process the paper. And that they have largely gotten past. Yeah, so there's two types of things when you think about paper associated with the filing season. So those go to the campuses. Uh, And that's probably the largest volume of paper that goes into the IRS. And then there could be, let's say, an IRS examination or something. That would be paper that would go into the local offices. But you are correct. Um, Currently, the the paper uh, should be or the mail should be processed on a regular basis, both in the local offices as well as the campuses. And with respect to the telephone calls, was the low response rate and the long wait times a result of volume or was it a result of what? Did volume go up because of the pandemic? Yeah, that's the biggest challenge. I think typically if you were to look historically at numbers, IRS would receive between 80 and 100 million calls per year. So during the first year of the pandemic, it went up to about 282 million. So almost in essence, three times the volume. 
and IRS didn't have three times of the employee resources. Last year, it dropped down to a mere $172 million, which is still almost twice as much as a normal year. Um, so what the IRS has done recently is it hired additional customer service representatives. Those are the ones who answer the phone. They were about 15,000 employees before, and they've added an additional 5,000 uh, in an effort to get the phones under control in the 2023 year. It's a difficult task because those folks that answer the phone are also the ones that process a lot of the paper that comes into the campuses. Got it. We're speaking with Erin Collins. She is the National Taxpayer Advocate for the IRS, working on behalf of the Treasury Department. And so it sounds like then the big issue is that telephone operations simply don't scale. It's a linear number of people you have to add for the numbers of calls that you get. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, again, it has to do with volume. So if the IRS can put the paper behind them, get those refunds out the door and all the other challenges, it should decrease the volume. And if you decrease the volume, they should have enough folks answering the telephones. And Congress did appropriate, assuming it happens every year for the next 10 years, another 8 or $9 billion a year per year for 10 years for the IRS. One thing that's come to light is that they need to do a plan for how they'll spend that money. Are you able to assess the planning so that they can use the money if they get it? It's never a certainty for 10-year funding plans, but presuming they get it, do they have a way of spending it for the most effect? Yeah, so the part that you know TAS, my office focuses on, is really the service and the modernization piece. And that had specific funds allocated with the Inflation Reduction Act. And that is where we've been pretty involved throughout this process. So it passed over the summer. IRS um, immediately stood up a team, and they have been working on this. And the goal is to provide a plan to the Secretary of Treasury uh, by middle of February. And so we've been giving a lot of comments and have been involved in a lot of meetings on the service and modernization front. So I've been very optimistic about what they are envisioning. Don't know what will go in the final report, but they truly are trying to step back and look at things differently, not just tweak what we currently have, but to be transformational, is to, in essence, hopefully in three to five years, the IRS will look completely different than it did last year. Right. And IT is one of the top 10 challenges and one that got a lot of money. And they have been on a continuous modernization program for IT for at least 30 years. I mean, in some sense, forever. They've been you know, on the forefront of changing information technology. Maybe just sketch the outlook for modernization from an IT standpoint. Where does it stand now and what do they need to do next? Yeah, I think some of the biggest challenges IRS currently has is they have what we call standalone systems. They're in excess of 60 standalone systems. So when you think about computers, the real key issue they have to do is integrate all of these systems into one so that it's seamless. So, for example, if you were to call as a taxpayer the customer service representative and ask a question, they may have to look at four or five separate systems in order to assist a taxpayer in answering a question. Whereas they have an integrated case management system, it should be, you know, as earlier you talked about a push of the button, you should be able to see everything in one place. And what I'm really pushing, and I, I don't think the IRS disagrees with this, is I would like the same system for taxpayers. So if you're a business or an individual or even a practitioner, you could go online and access your account and be able to see everything in one place. So currently the IRS, you could go onto an account, you can see your transcript, your payments, um, uh, bills, 
that sort of thing. It's very basic, your W-2 1099. What we all envision is that pretty much all of your tax information, including your tax returns, will be available. All the notices that the IRS sends to you will be in one place online. Uh, you can respond online. You could actually chat with a customer service representative through your online account. So we're really trying to get much more um, similar to industry. You know, what? think of your financial institution. Most people work with their financial institution through online accounts. A lot of folks, when was the last time you went into a bank? Um, a lot of individuals are actually doing that through their online account. And that's where we're envisioning the IRS online account to go as well. Is the master file system somehow at the heart of all of this difficulty in getting to that state? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the foundation, I would say, of their computer system. So think about 170 to 260 million returns are filed each year, and that's contained in either the individual master file or the business master file. And so they have data going back to the dawn of time. That is a major lift to modernize that system so that can integrate with all the other systems that the IRS is looking to build. Because they have had repeated attempts at modernizing that over the years, and they keep restarting, getting fresh billions, but yet it persists, to use the words of a famous senator. Yep. Well, and I think the the thing that I'm optimistic about here is, as of today, there's 10-year guaranteed funding for them. And so the challenge with IT is how do you start an IT project on a one-year budget without knowing what your budget will be year to year? So I know the commissioner and others in our office have pushed for sustained multi-year funding. With this additional funding, IT will be able to plan out one to ten years down to make all those improvements without starting and stopping. And let me ask you about the 65 legislative suggestions to Congress on some of the IRS's ongoing problems. In the report, they're listed in no particular order. In your mind, are there things that you wish Congress would look at first? Yeah, I guess I have a, I have a big mind. So I have a lot of things I wish they would look at first. So, But I think if you look at things impacting a lot of taxpayers, the first one is really trying to establish the minimum competency standards for tax return preparers. That has been an issue that's bounced back and forth for the last decade. We go into a lot of discussions in the report on this, but you look at those folks who are not regulated. What we're seeing is a real trend towards errors on those returns. And if we looked at the EITC audits, and if you look at the percentage of penalties and adjustments, a very high percentage, I think it's about 70%, are those who are unregulated. And so we really think that by getting better education, and getting these folks in the system, that's going to produce better results for taxpayers. Because a lot of people don't realize that if your accountant makes a mistake, you're still liable for the tax. That's not the accountant's fault. So um, that, I think, has been annoying to people when they realize that, oops, my return preparer made the mistake, and now I'm liable for the tax and the interest and potentially penalties. Almost the way that we demand regular education and steep difficult tests for CPAs, in other words. Yes, correct. And that idea, though, does get to the complexity of the tax code. And to ask Congress to simplify that is just not even, I mean, you can state it, but that's like saying, you know, asking God to make the earth start revolving in a different direction. It's just simply not going to happen. But isn't the complexity... But, 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 but let me back up on that, because I do think one one code section at a time... <laughs> 
I think Congress can, on a go-forward basis, adjust certain code sections to make it more simple. The earned income tax credit is one. It's very difficult for taxpayers to understand, and it's very difficult for the IRS to audit and administer. So even making that one small correction could make a huge difference to individuals. Because in some ways this relates to another part of the report, which is what are the 10 or the top most litigated areas. And the things that seem to occupy the tax courts the most are the levels of income that people are claiming, the most basic thing in the tax return, and also the Schedule A deductions. And those affect so many people, almost everyone, it seems like that's where they should start simplifying, just based on the litigation, or am I making a connection that's maybe not there? Well, I think if you look at the uh, most litigated issues section, especially on the individuals, actually individuals and businesses, a lot of them are facts and circumstances. They're not per se a a legal determination. Um, And and so it's really whether or not the taxpayers have established sort of the burden of proving their entitlement. And if it's gross income, the IRS is saying it should have been included and taxpayers are saying it should be excluded. So a lot of that is really just facts and circumstances. So I think when you look at the most litigated issue, I think people are surprised that they're not really legal issues that are coming forward, but factual issues. All right. So getting back to the 65 legislative recommendations, the first one would be tax preparer competency. Are elements of the tax code to fix first? Are those part of that 65 also? Yeah. So it's pretty much a range of things. One of the other things when we talk about litigation, currently, if you have a uh, what we call a refund litigation, normally you have to go to district court or claims court. And that is a not as user friendly, if that's the right word. Uh, for taxpayers. And when you look at the most litigated issues section in the report, you realize that a very high percentage, I think it's in excess of 70% of these taxpayers represent themselves in court. District court and claims court is a little more difficult for taxpayers to represent themselves. So one of the recommendations we're making is to have those refund cases, those refund suits, to be eligible to go to tax court. Those are judges who are trained in tax area and they have procedures for individuals with under $50,000, it's a much more informal procedure. And again, more taxpayer-friendly and easy for taxpayers to use. So we've made that recommendation as well. We're speaking with Erin Collins. She's the National Taxpayer Advocate. And these recommendations, the ones I looked at briefly and the ones you've talked about, seem to be as if they would be fairly nonpartisan issues. I mean, the IRS comes up in partisan debates often, but these seem pretty easy fixes for Republicans and Democrats to talk about. Yeah, I, that, that's my conclusion as well. I think they are more procedural fixes, and they should not be you know, party-lined issues. These are things to improve tax administration and make it easier for taxpayers. And I think both sides of the House should be pushing for that change. And in working with the IRS throughout the year to gather the information for your report, what is your sense of what bothers them the most, the people you deal with, the managers running all of these millions of sub-programs that make up a pretty complex agency? Yeah, I think they share a lot of what we have in the report, and it's how do we improve our taxpayer service? How do we um, help our agents? How do, and even inside the building, you know, the IRS has had challenges getting upgraded you know, computers and having access. And even when I worked at the campus not too long ago, Uh, Simple things like making sure people have staplers and staple removers and having adequate paper. 
I mean, you would think that these would just be a normal situation, but there are times we just need to improve their work environment as well so they can work better for taxpayers. I imagine those that are in the telephone operator centers, I mean, it's easy to dump on them. It takes them two days to answer the phone. They get it wrong so much. We know what the statistics are in your report. But I imagine for those individual operators, it can't be much fun either, knowing you've got 300 people in your queue that you're never going to be able to get to today. Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult job that they have. There's a lot of expectation. And unfortunately, a lot of the folks, by the time they reach a human, they may not be such happy people. So they do sometimes get the brunt of it. So anyone who's calling the IRS, remember, they're, they're, you know, they're the messenger, so to speak. Don't take it out on them that we have problems in our system. They're really there to help taxpayers. But uh, it is an incredibly difficult job for them. And what's your sense of the whole question of the return to the office that every federal agency is facing? Would some kind of normalcy in that sense, do you think, just help the agency regain some equilibrium? Yeah, I think at this point, most of the offices have gone back to what we call pre-pandemic routines. A lot of our employees were on what they call frequent telework, so they had the option of coming into the office a couple days of pay period. So we are back on that. The folks that are in the campus working the paper, they have physically been in the building since the summer of 2020. So they came back into the building. Uh, Revenue agents, revenue officers, other type of folks, they have more flexibility but they also go out to taxpayer sites more often than they actually come into the building. Sure, and that gets back to the issue of human capital, one of the other top 10 problems, as they add people on the phones, as they add IT people, as they add whatever they're going to add with the appropriated and extra funding that's coming over the next few years. Their ability to hire well, to bring on people, to retain people, that's got to be one of the top challenges also. Yeah, the Human Capital Office is facing a lot of challenges because we're hoping to hire a lot more people. Um, Unfortunately, the IRS has a high attrition expectation over the next couple of years, as many as I think 50, 60 percent of our workforce over the next four or five years. And on top of that, with the additional funds from Congress, they will be hiring more individuals as well. So anyone who's in the federal government knows it's not easy to go through the hiring process. It's time-consuming. Uh, to get people from announcing the positions all the way through interviews and to the onboarding and the training. So it is a long process that we need to shorten that process and get more people through the door. So they're going to have quite a challenge over the next couple of years. Sure. So this is then for the next incoming commissioner. There is a nominee. There's no hearings yet on Danny Werfel yet, but he's been at the agency before, as you know. What do you think, uh, I mean, this is a little bit out of your lane maybe, but If you were the incoming commissioner, what would be the first three things you would do? Well, I think he's coming in at an interesting time because um, the report to the Secretary of Treasury was sort of, I call it the opening offer of what they plan on doing over the next 10 years. I, I do expect as time goes by that plan will be updated and changed. But he'll be coming in right about when that plan has been completed or submitted to the Secretary. So he's kind of walking into it a little bit after the fact. Um, So he's going to have to catch up with that. But I would think hiring um, and retention and training is going to be key, um, as well as modernization. Um, I would think those are the three things he's going to be focusing on. But really, for the commissioner standpoint, get the right people and then let them do what they need to do. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) Aaron Collins is the National Taxpayer Advocate. As always, thanks so much for joining me. 
Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to that annual report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you on your device. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges. You know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit 
uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working in the Special Olympics. It, you know, we and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I. I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of special olympics for themselves I, I i can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference how, how do we get how can listeners get involved in special olympics ways to get involved uh, tons of ways so uh volunteers obviously coaches officials um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.